Do you think it's important that we know our history? If you don't remember your history, you're doomed to repeat it, right? To know what we are today, we have to know from whence we came. And, you know, while we've come a long, long way in this country, when it comes to uh, attitudes towards race, we've still got a long way to go. The way we define what is history and how to teach it, the way we interpret how we got here, and the way we choose to live our days will ultimately define what history is going to be. We're talking about people who form the city you're living in, people who question the rules, and whose decisions still affect us today. We could be talking about your grandparents, your great-grandparents, or the ancestors of the woman in the checkout line next to you. History is happening right in front of us. And this brings us to Alton, Illinois, and why we're here. To highlight this city that is at the forefront of major change and whose people have led the way in social and economic movements. This is Shannon. And I'm Stephanie. Welcome to All Town USA. Alton is 15 miles north of St. Louis and on the confluence of the Mississippi and Missouri Rivers. The current population is just under 28,000. Alton is roughly 68% white and 26% African American, which is similar to the national census. However, other census data shows just how much Alton is struggling to make money. The median household brings in $22,000 less than the U.S. average. The poverty rate is more than double the nation and Alton's unemployment rate is 3% higher. Alton is a snapshot of what the nation is going through with regards to race tensions, industry loyalties, and deep roots in the North and the South. In this episode, we're going to take a look at some of the major economic, social, and political issues that shape this town. We begin with J. Eric Robinson, an assistant history professor at St. Louis College of Pharmacy and tour guide for the Underground Railroad in Alton and Godfrey. And this Alton pier had a hundred piers, Walter Landing had a hundred piers for riverboats. And it was meant something to be in an Alton, an Alton ship captain. Because you can make money. You can make a lot of money. There was a lot of money. The wealth in this town as recently as uh, the 1940s was stupendous. As you can tell by the quality of the houses that are still here. Even the smaller houses are very, are, are very ornate. Industrialization began in the Alton area in 1831 and expanded rapidly throughout the latter part of the 19th century. At one point in the early 1900s, the city boasted of having more millionaires per capita than any city in the nation. St. Louis was even noted to be the little town down the river from Alton. We met with John Dunphy, owner of the Second Reading Bookshop in downtown Alton. His store served as a safe house on the Underground Railroad, a fact that he is very humbled by. John is an author, cat lover, and an expert on Alton history. Yes, it was a microcosm of what was going on in the nation. There were pro-slavery advocates, abolitionists like Thaddeus Hurlbut and uh, Dimmick, who owned this building, 
It was a microcosm of the conflicts that would eventually tear the nation apart. I've contended for the longest time that Alton was defined by the struggle against slavery. Look at our history. Lovejoy, the Underground Railroad, safe houses like this, the Confederate prison, smallpox island. Okay, those are very significant pieces of history. We ventured to the Alton Museum of History and Art to learn more. There we met John Langley, one of the guides at the museum. John grew up in Alton and has a deep appreciation for what history can teach us. We asked him about Alton's legacy. A river town that has touched history an amazing number of times. Uh, just the confluence of, of the Missouri and the Illinois rivers coming together at Alton made it a, a hub and it also was the staging ground for the famous Lewis and Clark expedition, which was to open the West. Benjamin Godfrey helped open the West by his philanthropist views and, and, and opening so many businesses here that helped open the West. Um, Alton is an amazing town. I, I find out every day the Lincoln-Douglas debates took place here, some of them. Abraham Lincoln got a lot of his formation here. The city of Alton was in line to be the capital of the state of Illinois, and had it not have been for Abraham Lincoln, probably would have been. Wait, so the city of Alton was almost the capital of the state of Illinois? Here's what we found out. In August 1834, there was a vote to name another city as capital. Apparently, Vandalia was not working out, and Springfield made the best offer to construct a new capital building. However, Alton won the popular vote, but not the vote of the 19th General Assembly, which included Abraham Lincoln, future Senator Stephen A. Douglas, and James Semple, the founder of Elsa, Illinois. According to sources, Lincoln was a strong supporter of Springfield becoming the state capital. Several historians have accused Lincoln of trading his vote to promote an internal improvements plan to build statewide infrastructure. During that time, a major railway system was being designed through the state, and Alton sought to be the center of this proposed system. The construction of railroads was vital in expanding businesses and transporting industrial resources, people, and news. They contributed to the vast growth of a city. Alton representatives then made some agreement that waived the capital votes to help Alton secure the railway position. But get this, the railroad project was never fully developed. No capital or state-recognized station. Another railroad that Alton was a part of was the Underground Railroad, a network designed to protect and aid African-American slaves fleeing to safety and freedom. Illinois was a free state, while Missouri across the river was a slave state. We assumed we knew what it meant to be a free state. Once you cross state lines, you're automatically free, right? Well, not quite. John Langley and Eric Robinson shine more light on this. Freedom in those days didn't mean what it does to us today. <clears throat> there was significant differences. Uh, if you came here as a slave, you were still a slave. You were another man's property. If you were a runaway, the law stated that you were to be shipped back by law. People here were obligated to ship you back. The Underground Railroad, one of the reasons that we have so few documents on it, was that it was illegal. The people that were running the Underground Railroad, so to speak, were breaking the law. So therefore, documents were not, not very readily coming because people didn't want to keep documentation that they were breaking the law. As far as the status of free blacks, every state, with the exception of Maine, had some kind of restriction on free, uh, against free blacks. 
such as uh, uh, forbidding uh, interracial marriage, for example, such as uh, the state of Connecticut and the state of Illinois as well, uh, restricting the education opportunities of free people of color. Illinois, for example, it was illegal for uh, Negro children to attend any school to be taught to read and write until 1872. Uh, you had uh, parts of of uh, the United States saying, well, if you're a free black, you have to have freedom papers, but if you don't have freedom papers, we get to sell you into, into slavery if you've been in the, in, in the area for 60 days without freedom papers. Arbitrary things like that. And... Uh, and that, 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 that indicated that there was a very tenuous relationship as far as free blacks were concerned and freedom. It wasn't as so when you got, or so it's a lot of people think, when you got to a free land, you were suddenly free. So if you escaped to a free state, you weren't safe and suddenly free. Let's break this down. In 1817, the U.S. government admitted Mississippi as a slave state and planned for Alabama to also be a slave state in 1819. So the territory of Illinois was assigned statehood in 1818 and was then designated to be a free state to even it out. Eight years prior, Illinois had 168 registered slaves, and in 1820, two years after becoming a free state, it had 917. So clearly, the designation was handed down from the federal level and was not recognized by the state government or citizens because Illinois black laws were established to deny fundamental freedoms to African Americans. So within a year of becoming a free state, Illinois implemented black codes in 1819, which stated that blacks could not vote, they could not testify or bring a lawsuit against whites, they could not gather in groups of three or more without risk of being jailed or beaten, and they could not serve in the military or bear arms. In 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act, also known as the Bloodhound Law, required that all escaped slaves upon capture be returned to their masters, and that officials and citizens of free states had to cooperate. This was a reason the Underground Railroad existed in Alton, because freed slaves and escaped slaves were still allowed to be captured in a free state. Blacks living in Illinois were required to obtain and carry freedom papers. Otherwise, you were presumed to be a slave. Illinois black laws were repealed in 1865, the same year the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery was proclaimed. A lot of people are ignorant about what it meant to be free and what it meant to be slave in the United States. A lot of people are very, very ignorant of, uh, of slavery. You know, unfortunately, too many people look through slavery through the prism of the nadir of race relations, which it's understandable they would look through it from that because that's a big thing. It was very violent and very dreadful. If you look at slavery as an institution, in 1865 from the lens of 1865 rather than from the lens after 1896 it's a different view that you have with it uh first of all it's it's important to note in general that most white americans were of the opinion that america should be a white only country that was not an unusual view that was the position of the democratic party Uh, going up until the 1960s. Yeah, you heard that right. The 1960s. Let's explore why. Abraham Lincoln was the first Republican president. The Republican Party was formed in 1854 and stood united to preserve the Union and prevent the spread of slavery. And during this time, the Democratic Party governed the southern slave states. 
Democrats didn't welcome blacks into the party publicly, and it wasn't until 1924 when they were allowed to attend Democratic conventions. Most blacks who lived in the South were mostly prevented from voting at all, and it wasn't until the 1960s when a majority started voting as Democrats. As Eric goes on to say, the Democratic Party expressed their prejudices in a variety of ways. The Indian removal policy being the most, most important uh, expression of America as a white-only country. And they also expressed it by saying that America could not exist with any black population at all. So in that regard, the uh, state governments such as Indiana and Pennsylvania funded agents of the American Colonization Society to encourage the free blacks to exit the United States and immigrate to, say, uh, Sierra Leone. And a number did do. The Creole population of Sierra Leone settled there. Did you know about this society? Because we didn't. Here's what you need to know. The American Colonization Society, or ACS, formerly known as the Society for the Colonization of Free People of Color of America, was a group established in 1816 who supported the migration of free African Americans to the continent of Africa. The ACS helped to found a colony on the Pepper Coast of West Africa as a place for free-born or freed American blacks. In total, they assisted in the immigration of more than 13,000 Americans to that colony, which is now the country of Liberia, and they published the African Repository and Colonial Journal. After 1919, the society essentially ended, but it did not formally dissolve until 1964, when it transferred its papers to the Library of Congress. Uh, And in that context, one needs to remember that for the free blacks who existed in the United States during slavery, the only thing that kept them free literally was the word of a neighbor. The neighbor was very, very important, more important than the freedom papers. Freedom papers, in many ways, weren't worth the paper they were printed on because in most states, Maine was an exception, but in most states, all a white person had to do was take the papers, tear them up, and say, you're a slave, and I'm going to sell you. And after the future of slave law, that was enforced. In a variety of different cities, there were dangers that existed for free blacks. They would, they would be kidnapped and sold. In places like Manhattan and the state of New York, uh, you ran the risk of mobs. Irish Catholic mobs, for example, attacked free blacks. As being, uh, as being economic threats, which they were very much. Um, and so you had those type of things taking place. We reached out to activist and veteran Joshua Young, who has conducted lots of research on social dynamics. Well, I mean, the whole, the whole region goes back from Madison County to St. Clair County, and the very namesake of St. Clair, and, you know, he being the first to bring uh, around 500 slaves to this area for agricultural purposes. But as we move through, through Illinois' history, back when it was Illinois' country, you know, Illinois adopted some of the strongest, you know, black codes or black laws. You know, Illinois was just a couple of votes away from becoming a slave state. You know, this region, even though you know, we're in Illinois and we're a free state. The, the region itself, like he said, it, it supported, you know, slavery and, and, and the aspects of it. There's a hidden history in Alton that's not talked about. And 
you know, they do mark upon the, uh, the, the Underground Railroad and the, uh, the Maroon Colony. But, you know, the, 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 the people that were part of those times, they, they were from here. I.H. Uh, Kelly, you know, he's a, a person who was a conductor of that Underground Railroad, who was also, you know, one of the, uh, the, the forefathers of the Prince Hall Masonics in this area. The Prince Hall Masons are an African-American branch of the established fraternal order whose Masonic lodges can be found around the world. Prince Hall was an African-American who started the Freemasonry movement in 1775 and promoted action and protection through churches and communities run by freed blacks. These networks and families strengthened the order's involvement within the Underground Railroad in a number of states and into Canada. Alton's Lodge was the second in the state of Illinois and was chartered in 1856. All right. Um, I'm Corey Davenport. I'm the lead reporter at Riverbender.com. Corey has spent the past few months researching and publishing stories on African Americans from Alton to get the word out about these individuals who have made a big impact in this region. We interviewed him alongside Mr. Joshua Young. Mostly Underground Railroad wasn't actually underground, but in Alton it is. There's tunnels for people to hide escaped slaves because there were bounty hunters in this town who made their money selling them back to Missouri. And they made a way of life from selling people. And that, that's, that's in Alton. They would sell people from freedom back into slavery in this town. That's why they had to be hidden. And I don't think Altonians realize they have that bloody and messed up of a history. Around Alton, there are historical sites that are known for having a dark past. We visited one of them. I also read somewhere, it's really interesting with thinking about how history and how ideas and buildings are designed by external forces. The design of this prison was actually inspired or designed after Auburn, New York. It was called the Auburn Plan and there's Auburn and I think there's a prison in Philly that was built in the 20s. Basically it's like a labor camp. So you have these cells, you have at least two people per cell, you have them working during the day, and they're either doing different manufacturing, carpentry, different jobs, and then the work they're doing is being sold. And that was a model that was carried here um, when they created this prison. Alton's prison was Illinois' first state penitentiary. It was built on the corner of Broadway and William and stretched several blocks. The prison opened in 1833 and held 24 cells, designed to hold two convicts in each. As the number of inmates kept increasing, additional cells had to be added, and by the time it closed in 1865, there were 256 cells. The government paid the warden $20,000 a year, which is roughly $300,000 today, for the maintenance and care of the inmates and facility. What money remained was supposed to be the warden's wages, including the profits from the manufacturing done by the inmates. Well, that's not exactly what happened. Well, he sort of flipped it, right? So he is known to live really lavishly. He built a ton of big houses around this area, and he just gave it to himself, <laughs> which contributed to, of course, the reasons why this place is really known for um, its poor conditions and really unsanitary conditions, rat-infested, poor drainage, and then that also 
contributed to the smallpox outbreak that is here and famous for. The conditions became so bad that by the 1850s, a social reformer by the name of Dorothea Dix led a campaign to close down the Alton prison. While she was advocating for more humane conditions, Chicago began to boom, and another state prison was being built closer in Joliet. In the following years, inmates were transferred to Joliet, and by 1816, the Alton prison was closed. Until the Civil War. Because of the prison's location on the river, Alton became a military post during the early years of the Civil War. By 1862, it was clear that the war was not coming to an end anytime soon, and more space was needed for the growing number of Confederate prisoners. The now empty prison was an ideal location to house these prisoners of war. So the prison was reopened in 1862 and quickly became overcrowded. It's estimated that the maximum capacity of the prison was 800, but by the end of the war, there were as many as 2,000 prisoners. As you can imagine, living conditions inside the prison were extremely poor. One statistic states that 6 to 10 inmates died a day. Another leading cause of casualties was smallpox, which was extremely common during this time period, and it started to spread quickly within the crowded walls of the prison. Alton civilians became worried that the growing number of infected prisoners and deceased bodies would spread the disease throughout the city. So it was decided that the sick would be taken to a hospital located on an island on the Missouri side of the Mississippi River called Sunflower Island. It would later become known as Smallpox Island. So we are at Alton Riverfront Park. And we are looking towards Missouri over the river. And there's a plaque on, um, on this side. It talks about Smallpox Island. During the Civil War, a great deal of suffering and death occurred on an island in the Mississippi. About 266 prisoners died of smallpox during the epidemic. Disease was the chief killer during the Civil War, taking two men for every one who died of battle wounds. And there's a quote from Abraham Lincoln. It says, in this sad world of ours, sorrow comes to all and to the young. It comes with bittersweet agony because it takes them unawares. The island is now underwater, as are the men, women, and children who lost their lives. The prison closed officially in 1865 at the end of the war and was taken apart by 1870. Many of the limestone blocks were used in the construction of other Alton buildings. All that stands now of the prison are a few walls. Oh yeah, so we're standing here and there's, I mean, how many blocks? Yeah, there's like 12 blocks up, and then six across, six or seven, and... Yeah, this is what's left of it. Yeah. That's incredible, considering how big it was. And now it's literally a parking lot. Alton played another significant role during the Civil War. The Steamboat Alton is kind of an unknown part of history as far as I'm concerned, and it's very significant in that there was a group of people 
right after the shelling of Fort Sumter, took a riverboat, appropriately named the Alton, a wooden paddle wheeler, from Alton, of course, to the St. Louis Armory, and forged some documents and went into the armory and told them that they were there to pick up the arms and ammunition, which, of course, the people believed them and give them the arms and ammunition, which they loaded on the riverboat Alton and brought it back to Alton and loaded those arms and ammunition onto a rail car and shipped them to Springfield, Illinois. Had they not have done that, the Civil War probably would have, well, could have went the other way. I don't know whether it would totally change the war or not, but it would have made a significant difference because all those arms and ammunition would have fell into the hands of the Confederacy. So like John mentioned, the steamboat story was in the beginning of the Civil War, days after Fort Sumter, when troops were forming and Union supporters lived next door to Confederate loyalties. With the safety of the city in mind, the captain of the St. Louis Arsenal sent a messenger to the Illinois governor and recommended that the arms and ammunition be removed and sent north to Unionists. Over 20,000 muskets and 1,000 pistols, cannons, and carbines were shipped to Alton and unloaded by civilians into trains heading up to Springfield. But can you imagine people answering a fire bell at the wee hours of the morning, coming out their night clothes even, and helping to unload rifles, uh, muskets, revolvers, uh, countless rounds of ammunition from the riverboat and then loading them on a train which took them up to Springfield to arm Union troops. Had they not acted, who knows what would have happened. Some say that while this action greatly helped the Union Army by supplying them with a large amount of weapons, it also may have kept the state of Missouri from joining the Confederacy. Alton and Altonians provided ammunition for our troops in another significant way. Enter Franklin W. Olin, a Vermont-born engineer who founded the Equitable Powder Company in East Alton in 1892. The company started by supplying blasting powder to Midwestern coal fields. However, in 1898, the powder company soon expanded into small arms ammunition, and the Western Cartridge Company was formed. Western played a huge role in World War I, meeting the high demand for brass for military cartridges. Western later purchased the famous Winchester Repeating Arms Company, this new company, called Winchester Western, made major contributions to Allied forces in World War II. They manufactured 15 billion rounds of ammunition and also developed the U.S. carbine and the M1 rifle. During this time, the East Alton plant employed nearly 17,000 workers. Olin owned a variety of other businesses, and in 1944, he brought them together to form Olin Industries, which still exists today. The war production helped the Olins become one of the wealthiest families in America. Set on the Mississippi River, near the center of the country, Alton became a valuable resource in production and manufacturing for the nation. And uh, the rails kind of took over, and, and Alton grew, grew rapidly. It became a, a major industrial hub. We had Winchester, Western, Owens, Illinois, Glass, Laclede, Steel, Lure Packing, uh, the Alton Box Board, many great companies came here. Then when modernization came along a few years ago and they started going to mechanization and also they started to find the unions out of favor, they moved a lot of jobs to the south since they could get cheaper labor. And a lot of jobs moved not only to the south but out, outside of the United States because they could get cheaper labor. So uh, th this happened, so Alton dramatically changed there. 
The Illinois Glass Company modernized the glass industry by using machinery invented by the Owens Bottle Machine Company. The machine made producing standardized bottles faster and at a higher quantity, which replaced skilled glass blowers. Illinois Glass produced glass products for a wide variety of uses medicine bottles, alcohol and soda bottles, ashtrays, and more. Their success prompted Owens Bottle Machine Company to purchase Illinois Glass in 1929, forming Owens Illinois Glass Company, which became the world's largest glass producing factory. The plants were located in Alton, which boosted the economy and made Alton a highly successful industrial town. In its prime, the glass company employed nearly 2,400 people. We read about one local who said, every family in town had someone who worked for the glass factory. It used to be that you couldn't even buy a can of beer in this town. Everything was in a bottle. And if you dared to show up to a party with a six-pack of canned beer, they'd make you pour it out. Sadly, the growing popularity of plastic and aluminum slowed the demand for glass bottles. After several years of decreased production and layoffs, the Alton plant closed in 1983, after 110 years of operation, leaving the remaining 312 employees without their jobs. All these industries contributed to the fast growth in population, and in the 1960s, the city's population was up to 50,000. But in the 2000s, Alton felt a 40% decline to the current population of 27,000. I can remember Alton had a population of 47,000. It wasn't all that long ago. It was just back in the 70s, when I was probably about your age. Then the industry began to leave. The good jobs departed, many of them union jobs. The population plummeted. Um, Alton's never recovered from that. When Alton had a had an industrial base, workers actually had it pretty good here, all factors considered. Uh, they were represented by strong unions. They made good wages. Now it's the service sector primarily, people working retail and fast food restaurants, and it's grim. They're just scraping by, just barely scraping by. People are working multiple minimum wage jobs just to keep their head above water. I like to see people who work just one job and that's it. A decent paying job, maybe union, and with decent wages and, and benefits, actual benefits. How we're gonna make that happen, I don't know. But um, <laughs> Alton three invented itself. It was a small city, small industrial city, and now it's um, service-oriented, and one of its primary industries is ghost hunting, <laughs> bringing, in, <laughs> bringing in the ghost hunters. So Alton has got an amazing history behind it. I think Alton's future will continue to touch history. It's just that kind of a town. Things are, are always happening here. It seems like we're kind of a, a common ground for a lot of things to take place. And where it's headed, I don't know. We'll let history tell us about that. <laughs> In our next episode, we will talk about Alton's Military Academy, what Alton has done and is doing with its many historical monuments, and discuss some important figures from Alton's past, including Elijah Lovejoy and his significance in regards to freedom of the press and the role his death may have played in the start of the Civil War. Elijah Parrish Lovejoy was the first well-known martyr to freedom of the press. He was the one that was probably most well-known because Civil War's historians will tell you the first shot of what led to the Civil War conflict 
was the murder of Elijah Lovejoy, November the 7th of 1837. So not only is a martyr to press freedom, but he is also a martyr to what ultimately caused the country to divide. All Town USA is written, produced, and edited by Shannon Briggs and Stephanie Young. Theme music by Will and Janet Buchanan, with additional recording mixing by Darren Pierce. Opening and closing remarks by Jim Schrader. Special thanks to Corey Davenport, John Dunphy, John Langley, Eric Robinson, and Joshua Young. 